this will be costly, it will be complicated, but at the end of the day, it's all about building more national resilience so that we can weather crises like this and weaning ourselves off this dangerous dependency on China. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Congressman Mike Gallagher, who represents Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District. Mike served seven years in the Marine Corps and rose to the rank of captain. He was a counterintelligence officer who served two tours in Iraq. He is a graduate of Princeton University with a master's and PhD from Georgetown. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee. Welcome, Mike Gallagher. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be with you. Uh, I would like to begin um, by talking about legislation that you and Senator Tom Cotton are sponsoring. The title of the legislation is Moving American Pharmaceutical Production Out of China for the Health and Safety of Americans. Can you explain why this is not only important, but how much are we dependent upon for pharmaceuticals from China? Absolutely. I think, you know, we need to put this in the context of the last two decades. What, what is the biggest bet we've made as a country? Well, I would argue that allowing China's accession to the WTO in 2001 was the biggest bet. And there was a logic to it, right? The whole idea was you would sort of integrate China into the global economy and you would incentivize them to become what many refer to as a responsible stakeholder. Now, the only problem with that bet, logical though it may have been at the time, is that it didn't work, right? I mean, the opposite happened, particularly once General Secretary Xi Jinping came to power, he started accelerating his dictatorial control of the country itself and also preparing to compete aggressively with America and ultimately, I believe, export that sort of techno-authoritarian model beyond domestic China across the world. And so what we're discovering right now, uh, after two decades of this experiment, is that we are dangerously dependent on supply chains that run back through Beijing in many industries. And what we're discovering right now in the coronavirus is that we are particularly dependent when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Most active pharmaceutical ingredients, these are called APIs, that are used for drugs in the U.S. are made in China. This includes not just exotic drugs, but 95% of our imports of ibuprofen, 40 to 45% of penicillin. If you read a great book called China RX, they talk about how most vitamin C that we may consume, buy at CBS and consume as a daily vitamin, comes actually from China. And so that is why Senator Khan and myself are proposing this legislation. We simply can't find ourselves in a situation where China, as they're doing right now, as Chinese Communist Party officials are doing right now, are threatening to cut off exports and thereby, quote, plunge the United States into a sea of coronavirus. And so this will be costly. It will be complicated. But at the end of the day, it's all about building more national resilience so that we can weather crises like this and weaning ourselves off 
this dangerous dependency on China. In your summary of the bill that you've introduced, you quote a Chinese Communist Party organization asserting that Beijing, under the current circumstances, could, and this is the quote, announce strategic control over medical products and ban exports to the United States. Then the United States will be caught in the ocean of viruses. Is that a threat? I read that as a very explicit threat. And this has actually been my concern for a long time watching and playing a small role in the 5G debate, uh, the future of the Internet. Really, if you kind of look at what companies like Huawei and ZTE are doing, and you sort of compare that against the backdrop of Made in China 2025, you realize quite quickly that what China is after is dominance. In that case, domination of the telecommunications industry, but to arrive at a position by 2025 where they could completely flip the script when it comes to export controls, right? So we say to our our companies right now that want to do business aging, well, they say, well, if we don't sell software to Huawei, you know, they'll make it themselves. Well, they will make it themselves eventually. And when they dominate the market, they're going to condition technology transfer or even just the export of basic pharmaceutical goods or basic technology upon meeting Beijing's very specific demands when it comes to censorship and surveillance. So I really read that not only as a specific threat to the United States from the CCP, but a harbinger of Orwellian things to come if we don't change course. With the coronavirus, uh, there has been a pushback by the Chinese Communist Party uh, against the idea that the virus actually started in China. And there were uh, several outrageous claims, including one that said that the U.S. military has somehow, shape, or form created the virus and is, and is the origin in spreading it across the world. What do you have to say about that as far as China being a partner or some country that we can trust going forward? Well, first, I, I just think we need to pause and appreciate how absurd these claims are. I mean, for Chinese officials to go out there and try and blame the United States Army for starting this virus is, is not only absurd, actually. It, it should tell us all that we are now not only at war with the virus itself, we are at war with Chinese propaganda. And I've actually been astounded and dismayed at the extent to which some of these narratives, these CCP propaganda narratives, are being parroted by useful idiots in the American media to steal a phrase from the Cold War. Um, and so I really think we need to be careful when we see things flying around social media that lead back to the CCP because they are deliberately trying to inject disinformation and they're trying to exploit this crisis in order to position themselves as the savior, which is ironic given that it all started in China. And so let us remember that uh, China did not warn the public in December. Uh, there was massive travel in and out of Wuhan 
throughout uh, the Lunar New Year. So hundreds of millions of Chinese were traveling. Wuhan's a massive transportation hub. China told the WHO on December 31st that the virus was controllable. Uh, as late as January 31st, the Wuhan Health Agency was claiming there was no human-to-human transmission. So I think it's fair to conclude right now that the opacity and the corruption of the CCP has cost lives around the world. And we would have been able to better contain this had they been more transparent early on, had they accepted the help of our CDC experts, for example, but they didn't. And now the fact that they're trying to cover that up and shift blame tells you everything you need to know about who we're dealing with here. In this controversy or in this, uh, in the middle of this plague that has hit the world, the World Health Organization has come under some severe scrutiny. And there are some critics who say that WHO actually was covering up for the Chinese or blindly accepting what the Chinese was giving in terms of information about the virus, which helped stall proper information from coming forward. And as you said, that could have saved lives. Can you comment? on the role of the WHO and what you think American policy should be towards this organization given the role it has played most recently? Well, I think the most generous interpretation of the WHO's actions and rhetoric in the last three months has been that they have been loath, they've been reluctant to criticize China. At one point, I think the head said, we appreciate the seriousness with which China is taking this outbreak, uh, and particularly the transparency they have demonstrated. Now, that, I think, is absurd and at odds with the actual facts on the ground. Now, whether the reason their rhetoric has been at odds with reality is because of actual corruption within the organization or, or whether it leads back to sort of financial incentives or whether the WHO is just not, is under a ton of stress and doesn't want to anger anybody, particularly a, a big country like China, I don't know right now. But it certainly seems that the w, like the WHO has not done the job that we are asking them to do. And without full transparency, I just don't think how we are going to prevent, I I don't know how we're going to prevent things like this from happening in the future. And it's why I applaud my colleagues, Elise Stefanik and Senator Josh Hawley for introducing a resolution that I've co-sponsored supporting a comprehensive and multinational investigation into the origin of this crisis. So we can understand what China did and didn't do and correspondingly understand what the WHO did and didn't do. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that a country uh, like Taiwan that is not allowed to be in the WHO has actually done a fantastic job in weathering this crisis among the best in the world. And perhaps it's because they didn't get taken in by Chinese propaganda from the start. I agree with you. And um, and I think that the idea of the commission to investigate uh, a the origins of the crisis and the response to it is an extremely good one. 
In your legislation, uh, the fourth point in the summary of your legislation, you talk about providing incentives for manufacturing of pharmaceuticals in the United States. Do you have a handle on America's capacity to pick up, let us call it the slack, if in fact we start pulling out of China and take it upon ourselves to provide our own pharmaceuticals or uh, move the uh, pharmaceutical supply chain over to another country or countries. Do you have any idea how long this would take that we can cut our dependency on the Chinese? Well, Senator Cotton and, and I set a very ambitious date, which is 2024. Uh, four years from now, we have two years where you can get waivers as you try and sort of make this shift. That is an ambitious timeline, to be sure. But I think given that China has a Made in 2025 plan, a Made in America 2024 plan makes sense. Now, even in the most aggressive and optimistic timeline, even if you come from a manufacturing state and district like mine, where you really fundamentally believe in the capability of America to make things here domestically, uh, we're not going to arrive at a situation where we can make everything here in America. So I can imagine us arriving at a hybrid model where a lot of this stuff gets shifted to countries we trust or countries we just trust a little bit more than China. It's fair to say that the second biggest source of a lot of our pharmaceuticals is in India, and they are not a perfect partner when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry. But I think that by setting an aggressive timeline, by trying to incentivize businesses to move everything as much as possible here domestically, we could come at come up with some creative hybrid options. Someone had suggested to me that Puerto Rico is actually a place where this would make sense. And so, listen, I think we need to get creative and I think we need to move as quickly as possible because the next time a pandemic breaks out, well, let's say the next time there's a massive cyber attack that takes down our grid or, or let's say we're not successful in convincing some of our allied countries to uh, not partner with the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to the future of their internet, we're going to be scrambling to produce some of the things we're scrambling to produce right now. And so we just don't want to be caught by surprise again. And while this won't happen overnight, there won't, there isn't a perfect solution. There has to be a better uh, reality that we can live in than the one we're living in now. What is your assessment of the United States? And here I'm talking about the federal government, and I'm also talking about uh, your state of Wisconsin, of their response to the coronavirus. Are you satisfied that all the bases that have to be touched are being touched? Would you like to see a shift in emphasis in any way, shape, or form in terms of how we think about and how we approach uh, combating this virus? Maybe let me go kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly with what I've seen in the last week and a half. So on the good side, Everyone, you know, Democrats, Republicans, the governor, legislators like me, state legislators, the hospitals, the manufacturers, everybody is trying to mobilize to defeat this threat, uh, to produce things that Wisconsin needs, like masks, like ventilators, and things like that. It's been inspiring to see how many 
businesses and concerned citizens are, are trying to step up and how we're, we're really trying to put politics aside to protect our state and its citizens. I would also say it's been really encouraging to see the seriousness with which a lot of Wisconsinites have taken the 15-day slow the spread. It's difficult, really difficult for a lot of people, but by and large, I've seen people exercising enormous discipline, and maybe because it's cold here, you know, we don't have a bunch of idiots that are doing jello shots on spring break right now uh, and not taking it seriously. Now, on the, the sort of bad category, as we try and ramp up testing exponentially in Wisconsin, we are discovering single points of failure in our testing supply chain. So, for example, we don't have enough of what's called reagents at the state labs and the private labs to process the test. We're trying to figure out how to ramp that up. You know, businesses that are trying to make masks are trying to figure out, am I even allowed to do it now that we've relaxed FDA requirements for all these things? So we're discovering some fragility in our supply chain to kind of relate this to our discussion about pharmaceuticals and the medical industry more broadly. The ugly, well, I would say right now what concerns me is that there are limits to our ability to stay shut down as a state and as a community. There aren't enough federal dollars to cover the cost of requiring a small business to stay shut down for 60 days. That's an extinction level event for a lot of people that creates mental health problems, other health problems, economic problems. And so I wrote an op-ed yesterday trying to convince the governor and others to start planning for what the next phase of this looks like. And the next phase doesn't have to be business as usual. I'm not suggesting that, you know, we just walk outside and do everything normal again in a week, but there's got to be a hybrid option where we can continue to slow the spread with social distancing while also figuring out things like how do we get our kids to finish their school year because they can't fall further behind? How do we allow businesses to stay open and not totally collapse? So that's what really worries me right now. Well, I think uh, you've hit upon several points that are extremely important, but the most, which at this point I think is the most controversial is your last point about looking ahead in how to restart not only our economy, but also restart the economic lives of millions of Americans. I'm in New York, and New York is full of restaurants and all sorts of uh, tourist-related businesses, etc., and uh, seeing these small sandwich shops and diners being forced to close, and nobody's complaining. They're willing to put in what they need to to help the community and to fight the virus, but that our elected officials in New York keep emphasizing that this could be months and Lord knows how many months. Well, you know, I'm sort of saying, uh, how do we start looking ahead without diminishing our battle against the virus? So I think you've got a very important point there. I hope you are successful in Wisconsin in getting some people uh, in positions of power to start thinking about this stuff. Well, you know, it's interesting. I just would say, you know, beyond just the, the basic economic math you could do or, or or this sort of taboo suggestion that a Great Depression could cost as many, if not more, lives than the virus itself, which I think is a fair question to ask. On a more elemental level, I think 
people need hope, right? You can't, you can't keep people just closed inside their apartments, their houses without any sense of what's the plan for victory. I mean, we're Americans. We want to win, right? I mean, we need some sort of sense of what is the ending here, right? And how can we all step up and do our part? And so ultimately, I think we're going to have to place a lot of trust in our counties, our cities, our local businesses, our small businesses, because I just fundamentally believe that no governor, no congressman, no president could design a one-size-fits-all top-down solution to this because the needs of Manhattan and L.A. are going to be different than the needs of Madison or Milwaukee, let alone Green Bay or, or Alloway, where I live. Uh, so we're going to have to have a little bit of, you know, it's almost a weird combination of confidence and humility going forward. I agree with you completely. Secure America now has over 4 million members, Americans, who care about a national security. And we see this fight against the virus as a major uh, battle that we have to win. But we also have been beating the drum about our dependence upon communist China having control over a large segment of our pharmaceutical industry. So I would like to wrap this up by one, offering you the opportunity uh, to uh, sum up what is what message you would like our audience to have. And secondly, to let you know that this microphone will always be open to you. And uh, our people are always thirsty for information, and we provide that for them. And if we can help in any way with your specific pieces, piece of legislation or pieces of legislation that you think uh, is worthwhile for us to get beyond, I urge you to let us know. Well, I really appreciate that. I will take you up on that, and thank you for your commitment to what I think it will be the defining debate and struggle of at least the next decade. What I find most interesting, and just quickly, if you want to get more info on my bill with Senator Cotton, you can go to gallagher.house.gov or cotton.senate.gov, and we have a one-pager that explains the whole thing. But uh, what's interesting to me is, you know, in the last three years under President Trump, our foreign policy has undergone a massive shift. If you if you read the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, we're really sort of saying after two decades of prioritizing counterterrorism in the Middle East, it is now time to pay attention to great power competition with China, 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 and a distant fourth place is Russia. What's interesting to me is that's actually, no matter how often my Democratic colleagues want to bash the president, very few of them actually disagree with the premise of his national security strategy and that shift. And so I think, you know, regardless of who's in the White House, a year from now or four years from now, this is the new uh, consensus position on U.S. foreign policy. And we've got a lot of people that are trying to figure this out, which is a hopeful sign. Um, and so, you know, I really appreciate your guys' commitment uh, to that. And thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. And let me just say that we go beyond the China issue I read your interview with the uh, American interest, which was very interesting. Um, and on broader foreign policy questions, we are we we're interested in engaging on. We do engage on them, and we're interested to 
amplifying your points of view. I thank you very much, Mike Gallagher. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.